Hi, I'm Emma Clark, and this is Before the Bar Opens, the podcast about what happens before the music starts. I talk to people who make, use, and love music. Rob Gray is a musician, a busker, a craftsman, and an instrument maker. He specialises in making cigar box guitars. Rob isn't merely a busker, Rob is a one-man band. He sings, plays guitar, plays the mouth organ and plays drums, all at the same time. As he describes it, gob iron, kick drum, hi-hat, vox and git box. He's the little big band and can often be seen on the streets of cities in northern England, entrancing audiences with his skills. I wanted to find out about his kit, how, where and why he plays it. And also, what the heck is a cigar box guitar? What's your first musical memory? Singing in the primary school at St Mark's Primary Church of England (laughs) School in Cheatham Hill. And did you like it? Yeah, I just sang along and then I was headhunted. The local reverend used to walk around the assembly. He sort of picked people that could sing and convinced them they should join the church choir, which is what I did. Oh, wow. So you were a choir boy? I was a choir boy for years. Oh, my Lord. Every Sunday? Yes, every Sunday, three times. I taught my sister into it and my brother into it and my dad joined. My dad had a fabulous bass voice. So it was a whole family thing? Uh, Yeah, and we were all in it. I mean, my brother soon left to join the Church Lads Brigade and my sisters weren't that convinced, but I just stayed for years. (laughs) When did you leave? How old were you? I was probably about 14, 15. That's a long time to be a choir boy, isn't it, really? To stick with it for that long? Well, yeah. We had to do something, you see. I think we were told we had to do something. So what instrument did you first learn to play? Because you play quite a lot of instruments, don't you, Rob? Well, I play the guitar and the harmonica and I hit a bass drum and I play the cymbals. But I don't really play any other instruments. Well, (laughs) that's quite a lot, really. Yeah. (laughs) For one guy, all at once. So was it guitar that you started learning first? Uh, Yes, we all learned to play from Bert Whedon's Playing a Day book, which is the famous... I remember those books. Anybody of a certain age will have had one themselves, although I had a brother that had it, and it was called Playing a Day, and you learnt your C and your F and your A minor chord, and then you could play a song. So much of Rob's musical life seems to have been set rolling by being talent-spotted by the Reverend. But music is such a big part of who Rob is, I get the feeling that come what may, he'd have found another way to start performing. Childhood experiences and memories of music and being recognised as musical are so formative in forming our relationship to music. It makes me realise how important and how delicate this is, how much children need to be encouraged to feel that they can do music, that music is theirs and is part of how they can express themselves, whatever that means and however they choose to do it. So, how did the little big band begin? Me and my little gang from school, we had our own nightclub. (laughs) How did you have a nightclub when you were a kid? Mrs P next door lived on her own and she had a cellar and she let us all have the cellar. (laughs) 
which we painted black and lit with like light bulbs and had loads of like we made like loads of furniture out of pallets and mattresses and stuff oh my lord it was like our take on the magic village from manchester only we were too young for that so we built our own and we'd sit down there listening to like leonard cohen and uh, tyrannosaurus rex and then we just like learnt to play guitars and stuff. So were you a little band together, you and your mates, you, you and your nightclub mates in, in the cellar? Sort of, yeah. What were you called? Oh, I can't remember. But it'd be something a bit Lord of the Rings-ish, <laughs> like Horned Beast or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so was that your first experience of performing then with that little group? Um, yeah, probably. And then we, we all went off to the uh, the Free Trade Hall in 1967, I think, or 69. We went there to see Tyrannosaurus Rex, my first ever gig that I went to. Oh, wow. But, I mean, he was only playing acoustic guitar and sitting cross-legged on stage, so it was quite accessible. A bit like the punk thing was accessible. Tyrannosaurus Rex was just one bloke and somebody else with a pair of bongos. And, of course, the support act on the night was David Bowie doing his mime. Wow. Before he was singing. <laughs> I saw him play live twice and it was just phenomenal. But then it was big stadium gigs, so the oh, Free yeah. Trade Hall and, and seeing him do mine must have been awesome. He was taught by Lindsay Kemp, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who recently just said he was absolutely crap anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when you saw T-Rex and Bowie, what did that do to you? Was it, was it kind of like a light bulb moment when you thought, oh God, music is what I want to do. I think I was already doing it. I, th I think it's just something I've always done. I've al I mean, I, I went to college as an art student, so I've always been an artist and I've always played music. I don't ever remember not doing either of them. So it's a huge part of you being creative. Yes, I think that's... I do try to be creative every day. <laughs> so what was the journey to you becoming a busker and the little big band starting. How did that all come together? I sort of had a very vague idea of a one-man band when I was at art college. I went to art college in Coventry in the early 70s and that was full of musicians, of course, because like Jerry Dammers was in my year with me. So that went off to be the specials. Yeah, I always just had guitars and stuff and mucked about with a one-man band, but it was never it never really happened. And then I sort of left art college, ended up in all these dead-end jobs like you do. And I went out one day, I was living in Bury, and I went out in Bury with a guitar and stood on the precinct and sort of made a few quid and thought, do you know, I'm never going to starve if I've got a guitar. Yeah. I mean, it was quite, a, it was, that was that was quite a moment to realise you could actually make some money just by turning up and doing a few songs. How did it feel that first day when you first got your guitar? You're on the pavement. Yeah. The shoppers going by arguably on the cusp of rain <laughs> in the north of England. Yeah. How did it feel at that moment when you were just about to start to sing? I was probably quite nervous the first time, but now it's quite strange. I mean, now I do it a lot. It's quite an interesting concept to know that you're going to go to a, a precinct and completely change it. One minute's just a precinct and then it's, I mean, I'm quite loud. <laughs> it's a lot more common now, but to turn an ordinary street into a gig is quite interesting. And to get a crowd going, I'd imagine, must feel amazing, just spontaneously. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's quite weird, actually. Sometimes it happens, sometimes you don't get, nobody takes any notice, but usually they do. What do you think causes that? Because I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes you can play exactly the same material and get a completely different reaction one time to another time when, when you know, everybody's 
up and dancing. What do you think is the difference between those two reactions? What causes it? Ooh, I, I, I'm not really sure. It might just be, it could even be the weather. It's really strange when you're out in the street because if there's low cloud cover, it's completely different acoustics to if it's clear. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know all about being in different types of booths and sound environments. Yeah, and theatres as well. If you've got, a, you know, a, yeah. a low ceiling or a high ceiling or, you know, the acoustics change the vibe completely. Yeah, so the the, the same kind of thing, you know. I mean, the one-man band thing evolved just from... I mean, I started with guitar and then I realised quite quickly that the trick wasn't to be good, but to be loud. <laughs> I'd seen pictures of old black blues guys in America playing on the street and they all have those uh, metal guitars. It's called a resonator and it's re they're really loud. You know, like when you stand in front of a banjo. Yes. But it's a guitar, the, the, the chrome guitar that I always the use. The beautiful, the beautiful things. It has like a spun resonator inside. I mean, if you remember those high-tech German stereo systems that had aluminium speakers in them. Yes, yeah. Well, it, it's like it's got one of those in it and the, the strings are directly connected to that resonator. So the guitar itself is really loud. And then you tap your foot to the music you're playing anyway. So I thought, well, I'll put a bass drum under that foot. So there's a bass drum and then the cymbals. And I just learned to play it. I discovered this trick with the harmonica. It was this magic trick. It's called cross-tuning. If you play a, a C chord on a guitar and you've got a C harmonica and you blow, you're just always going to sound like folk music. But if you play a chord in G and suck on a C harmonica, it's blues and you can't play a bum note. <laughs> so you kind of, you suck on one chord, blow on another chord and suck on the other. And this is the trick. This is the whole of blues in a very easy lesson. I've given the game away now. It's all one tune. You go fast or slow. <laughs> guess what i'm going to be doing after this interview rob <laughs> i was going to say i'm going to be sucking and blowing but i think i might rephrase that right <laughs> so that's it that's how it just got louder and louder and i mean and was I, that something you discovered or did somebody teach you that oh no i, I just I'd, I'd, I'd seen there was a bloke called duster bennett years ago who was a one-man band that sat down like that when you say one-man band, people immediately think of some clown. Yes. With a cymbal under his elbow and a, a swanny whistle or whatever. But you're a proper musician. You're not a clown. You're not, you know, cocking around. You're a proper musician playing... It is a form of... It is a proper form of street music. Yes, exactly. The, the blues, so... So is that what you play, the blues? Yes, all the time, when I'm busking. Why blues? It was the street music that all the sort of itinerant black guys played in, in America. So it's like you're keeping it really authentic to its roots. I'm trying to, yeah. Is that a big motivator for you? Um, it is to an extent. I mean, I, I still like all my miserable songs. <laughs> I'm quite happy sitting... I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm quite happy sitting in the house singing all my Leonard Cohen. And uh, In fact, I was thinking of putting on a night in the... Um, we have a parish church hall here that has gigs on. I was thinking of putting Rob's Night of Misery on. <laughs> I'd come. I'd be there like a shot. <laughs> I'd just do it all the, mis you know, all the Leonard Cohen and uh, Nick Cave and all those kind of things. So the idea of a busker and somebody playing street music, you imagine that people are going to play upbeat stuff to cheer people up, but you've got a completely different attitude. Oh, no, the blues, the blues is, is, is you know, no, that's good. People like that. And it, it goes along, you know, people dance. 
We get mobs of people dancing in the street, so that's okay. So what's your ideal set list then when you're on the streets? There's a song called San Francisco Bay Blues, which actually really was a catalyst for it. It's a guy called Jesse Fuller. And I bought a single in the uh, Oxfam shop in Altrincham of this guy. And he was the first of these blues one-man bands that I heard. So there's there's that song and there's Midnight Special. I adapt sort of lots of Elvis Presley ones and he'd sort of nicked all this music off the black guys. Which songs do people respond to the most? I think they respond to Subterranean Homesick Blues quite a lot. The Bob Dylan one. Because it's well known, I guess. It's, it's partly well known and there's a shed load of lyrics and you have to know it without thinking about it because once you launch into the first verse you're stuffed till you get to the end <laughs> there's no time to think about the lyrics you need to really know them <laughs> have you ever forgotten the lyrics and just had to improvise oh well yeah but you know with live performance it's amazing people have forgotten by the next verse yes it's not that precious live performance what's the worst part about being a busker I can't think of a bad part. I mean, probably just... I tend to try and get up very early if I'm going to go busking and make sure I find a spot. It's more and more difficult to get what we call the pitch, which is your spot to play on. Is it quite competitive? It can be. Church Street in Liverpool is remarkably busy with musicians all the time. And, like, to get a good spot on there... I mean, I know a guy... is a different type of street act, but there's a guy that does a street act... It's kind of quite a bizarre one. He ends up jumping through flaming hoops and stuff. Blimey. He has a camper van and he actually camps overnight on the spot he's going to work on. Wow. I mean, I'd get there sort of six o'clock in the morning and sit there till the people arrived. And how much distance do you give? What's the etiquette between buskers? Do you kind of have to give like a set distance between each other so you're not kind of cramping each other's style or the music's kind of blurring into your neighbour? How how does that work? In most places, it, it just works. People are respectful. There's quite a lot of youngsters that turn up with these horrible, really big PA things. They all sound like they're auditioning for the X Factor. Yes. And you get a lot of them that just stand there. They've not been around for quite a long time. They just appear. And you don't use an amp, do you? You just use the resonator guitar just to give you that extra volume. I've got a little amp that I use for my harmonica and voice just to compete. Because I guess otherwise it'd just be drowned by the guitar. Yeah, Wow. So how long have you been doing this? This is a dreadful number. I worked this out the other day. About 40 years. Well, Rob, you must have started very, very young. (laughs) In fact, actually thinking, it's probably more now, thinking about it. Blimey, all that experience. Oh, there's a few of us. There's a few of us about that I bump into around the country. Is it like a community of street performers? There's people that I still sort of see around. Uh, Mark Commode is a famous ex-busker. I didn't know that. I didn't know he was an ex-busker. Well, oh. do you remember the Railtown Bottlers in Manchester? Oh, of course. They, they, they were like a um, double bass and a washboard. A girl played washboard. They were all at Manchester Poly. He was doing film. He was the double bass player. And then there was the guitarist went on to work on the holiday programme, I think, and then something else. One of the other lads that played uh, Ollie... Still does theatre music around the area. And the girl ended up working, I can't remember where she ended up working, doing um, playing the washboard. She ended up working at some big music archive, I think. Wow. What's the legality of busking? Do you need a licence or can you just go and pitch up? Apparently there's about three boroughs in London that have actually passed 
bylaws that make it illegal in those boroughs. Really? But apart from that, a public space is a public space for the public to use. Yes. And you're a, mem- you're a member of the public, and as long as you're not actually threatening anybody or... Or doing anything offensive. Yeah, I mean, there's a Facebook page that's all about this. It's, it's just called um, Buskers and Musical Whores. They do this whole thing. It's Buskers Unregulated, where they step in and do legal things for people that have had trouble with it. Because it's not illegal in any way, shape or form to busk. The only trouble you get is with those funny little trainee police people that aren't really police people. <laughs> They're the bane of our lives because they really don't know and they just get panicky. What do they think is going to happen? I've no idea. But the real police have got better things to do, I think. Yes. <laughs> and I guess you're well known. I would imagine that, you know, if they beat special coppers or, I mean, my, my dad was a policeman and, and he'd he'd make it his business to know the, the regulars, do you know what I mean? Know the people on his beat. Oh, yeah. I used to know, I, I used to know a few of them. Inspector Swan in Manchester was a big favourite. He used to know me really well. <laughs> He was all right. He'd say things like, look, I'm going to be wandering around tomorrow with a foreign dignitary. Would you really mind not being here tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Liverpool was always fantastic for music. I know what I said about the crowding, but they just love it there. And there used to be another copper there called, they're called Busies in Liverpool. Yeah. Everybody called him Dog Licence. (laughs) Why? Because all the street traders, he used to be the bane of their lives and he would ask you if you had a licence for this and a licence for that. And they used to laugh and they'd say, when he got to the end of his tether and you had a licence for everything he could possibly think of, he'd say, well, have you got a dog licence? So he was a famous, uh, but they're probably all long gone. I mean, we're probably talking 30 years ago now, being the old bloke. <laughs> On your Facebook page, it says that you're available for baptisms, burials, and everything in between. What's the oddest gig you've ever played? Oh God, I played on the back of a of a convertible car driving up and down the front in Morecambe. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite a, a thing. I don't really know. It's just because it's such a small setup. People can have live music. I've, I've done barges, you know, like canal barges and things. Wow. For private parties? Yeah. Wow. I played in uh, Manchester Cathedral with the factory band Girutti Column. That's another thing altogether. Vinnie Riley from this band Girutti Column in Manchester took a liking to me act and uh, recorded me in Strawberry Studios and stuff. These are legends, Rob. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I did, I had a manager for a while. He never got any money. He got me loads of daft gigs. You know, I've done the opening spots for all sorts of, uh, Nico, Adrian Henry at the Library Theatre. Wow. (laughs) Dr. Feelgood, Donovan, a a strange guy called Ennio Marchetti that was a a strange Italian cabaret artist. And he used to be paid, I was the only busker that was paid to busk outside the Hacienda queue. Wow. How many people were queuing up? Oh, hundreds on the Saturday night. But you made a fortune, didn't you? It was a good little gig, that, yeah. It was. Queen Elizabeth Hall. I once supported Arthur Scargle at the Philharmonic Hall in um, Liverpool. How did you get that gig? I have no idea. (laughs) Was this through your agent? Well, I think it might have been somebody in Liverpool that spotted me and thought, he looks like a working lad and it's a labour do. Let's have him on. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you play for Arthur Scargill? Well, I just played the usual what I always play. Yeah, it was re- it was it was re- really good. <laughs> What's the best bit about being a busker? Being your own boss and just having a, a like about a three-hour working day. <laughs> <laughs> How many days do you go out? 
to be quite honest, I haven't been out since since the whole COVID thing started. Yeah. But I'm very close to going out again. But I'm just being sensible like everybody else. Yes. I don't actually really want to attract a crowd on a street. <laughs> yes, of course. But yeah, I mean, I've just been in Whitby a, a while ago and that was absolutely rammed with people because I really like going up to Whitby busking and Lancaster and Liverpool. I do Liverpool a bit. It's not as good as it used to be because it's just got too busy. All the older hands have said it's actually better now to go to smaller towns where they don't get much entertainment. <laughs> People who are starved of entertainment will just yeah. will just be happy with anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob makes cigar box guitars in his workshop in Lancashire, England. The cigar box guitar is a primitive instrument that uses an empty cigar box as a resonator. The earliest had one or two strings. Modern models typically have three or more. The earliest known illustration of a cigar box instrument is an etching copyrighted in 1876 of two American Civil War soldiers at a campsite, one of whom is playing a cigar box fiddle. Plans for a cigar box banjo were published in 1884 in an American comic called Uncalinos. It showed a step-by-step description of a playable five-string fretless banjo made from a cigar box. Cigar box guitars and fiddles were important in the rise of jug bands and the blues, often used alongside the washtub bass, jug, washboard and harmonica. As most of these performers were dirt-poor Americans, many couldn't afford a real instrument. The Great Depression of the 1930s saw a resurgence of homemade musical instruments. Times were hard in the American South, and musical instruments were beyond the means of most people. But with an old cigar box, a piece of broom handle, and a couple of wires, a guitar was born. On the homepage of his website, Rob writes, None of these dirt pie cigar guitars are set loose from the workshop until I'm happy with how they play and how they look. I'm not trying for something that looks shiny and new looking, but if you happen to be searching for a guitar that looks like it was found in a derelict barn, then you're in the right place. What is a cigar box guitar? It's basically a stick, a box and some wire. (laughs) It's that simple? In theory, it's that simple. And it was like most of the really old blues men from the 30s would only dream of being able to have a guitar. So they would actually get a cigar box, a piece of wood and get a bit of baling wire and stretch it and make this instrument. It's not only that, it's back to that need for music because I've also got a couple of things in my collection that are called, we call them vaudeville fiddles. It's a cigar box, but it's like a one-string violin. And the two I've got were made in the trenches in the First World War. Wow. By soldiers that wanted a musical instrument. And it's kind of developed. They tend to have three strings tuned to an open chord. A lot of people play them with a glass bottleneck slide, so you get that kind of old that blues. That bluesy sort of bluegrass sort of vibe. Yeah. And I went to a car boot ages ago and bought this massive box full of cigar boxes. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make one of these cigar box guitars one day. And it never happened, but I had them in the garage. And then our leader is called, you've got to have strange names, minor dirt pie guitars. Named strangely after um, a lane in Manchester that I found in a history book. It's like a long lost street in Levenjoom 
called Dirt Pie Lane. What a fantastic name for a road. I thought that you'd just sort of taken it from the deep south of America. No, well, this is it. You see, everybody has to have these strange names. And when I was reading this Manchester history book and I saw this Dirt Pie Lane, I thought, that's the name and it's got a relevance to me because it's a Manchester thing. God knows what it was. So our leader is called Chicken Bone John. (laughs) And Chicken Bone John runs a course in Preston. He does a one-day course and you make a guitar and he shows you how to play it in the day. And how have you refined the technique over the years? Because these are beautiful objects and I've put a link to your website in the show notes and people must go and have a look and see you making one on your website. They're beautiful things. I've made mine as simple as I can possibly make them. Each time I've made one, I've tried to get rid of some element. I think the aesthetics are really important to me. I only ever use boxes that are at least 100 years old. And they've usually got nice labels on or because they, they always have like really nice graphics on them. And I've just made them as simple as possible. Do they sound different if they're older? Every one of them sounds different. Yeah. All they've got is it's something called a piezo pickup, which is basically, it's like the microphone you put in a telephone mouthpiece in the old telephones. It's just like a metal disc. It's literally just stuck inside the box. It is actually microphonic. You could shout into one and you'd hear yourself. So it's not like an electric guitar. It does actually pick up the sound of the box. You know, a magnetic microphone just picks up the vibrations of the strings. So I just make them. I've probably sold hundreds <laughs> now. What chords can you play on them? Not complicated jazz chords, but, you know, I've learned to play lots of miserable songs as well as the blues. <laughs> I can knock out most of Leonard Cohen's songs, even though it's it's an open chord, which means you just move that up and down to get every sharp and flat chord. And then there's shapes for your minors and your sevenths. And that's all you need, really. So you just make those different shapes? Yeah. I mean, if somebody actually buys one, they get a little leaflet with all the chord shapes. I'm not turning this into an advert, but they get, <laughs> they get a little leaflet and they get a bottleneck and they get a gunny sack, which is like the, you know, in, in Johnny B. Good, used to keep his guitar in an old gunny sack, which apparently is um, any kind of canvas sack. We've got a really good coffee roasters nearby. I get all the coffee sacks off them and make bags for the guitars. Because all the materials that you use to make these guitars are from sustainable sources, aren't they? You've got old piano keys, you've yep. got bone dominoes, you've got hardwood. Yep. Where do you get all this stuff from? I've got contacts that have got me uh, piano keys. I've got searches in eBay at sort of about half 11 every day. I will be on eBay looking at every new listing of cigar boxes. When you get a cigar box, do you get a feeling that it's going to make a good guitar? Are there any that you've rejected for any reason? Not anymore, because I, I just only buy the ones I know are going to be right. How can you tell? There's a certain type of box. I think they're all, you can tell, they're kind of made of cedar wood or mahogany. Yeah, you can tell because I make them with little F holes in. And sometimes when you're cutting them, the strange smells from different kinds of wood. It's fantastic. Can you smell the history of the box? Oh, yeah. And the beauty of it is some of them, because they've been around for years, I get loads that turn up and they'll have a label on saying nuts and bolts. Because <laughs> <laughs> people or, will use them for storage or, or in a yeah. shed They've been, they've been in some old bloke's garage for... <laughs> For 50 years, like. <laughs> How can you tell when a guitar is finally done and ready to sell? Well, it's the very last bit. It's called the setup, where you just get the strings to the exact right height and make sure they've got to be absolutely bang on in tune all the way up the neck. 
there's a certain amount of science to the last bit, which probably didn't exist early on. But because I'm making instruments that I'm selling to people who are guitarists. They know what they're looking for, so you know yeah, what to give they, them. They call it the intonation, so it's got to be absolutely right. bang on all the way. Are you protective of your guitars? You know, if somebody fills in a form on your website and you think, well, oh, I've got a bad vibe off this person. I don't want them to have one of my beautiful guitars. Are you ever protective of them? Do you want them to go to a home where they're going to be loved? Most of them I sell at the treacle market in Macclesfield. I do that every single month on the last Sunday of the month. They take about three months for me to sell them because people come past the stall because I sit there all day long playing it with a little stall with the guitars on and people will turn up and they'll see them and they'll watch me for a bit. Then they'll turn up the next month and have another go and maybe ask a couple of questions. And as they walk away, I say to them, if you turn up next month, you're buying one. (laughs) (laughs) Because they do. I mean, there's quite a few people just buy them instantly when they see them. But the bulk of people have kind of been convinced. I've sold two this week that are both for 60th birthday parties. So it'll be to somebody who's either always wanted to learn to play an instrument and they're quite easy to play, or somebody who's a guitarist and whoever the relative is, is thinking they're going to love one of these because I know they like guitars. What would you say to someone who's cigar box guitar curious? Oh, I don't, well, there's loads of stuff to watch online and stuff. There's a guy called Shane Spiel. He's the godfather of the cigar box guitar in America. Then we've got Chicken Bone John here. And then this hollow belly. <laughs> You've got to go with all these names. Hollow belly is a one-man punk band that plays a cigar box. It was very good. So basically just find out about them and take the leap. Oh, yeah. I get loads of people come back to the treacle saying, absolutely loving this. It's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> Have you got one to hand that you can just strum a bit on just so I can hear the sound? Uh, yeah, I just happen to have one here in my hand. You can see pictures of Rob's craftsmanship on his website dirtpie.rocks and there's a video of Rob making a guitar it's a fascinating process the sustainable hardwood metal recycled piano keys and old bone dominoes come together in mesmerizing time-lapse photography and evolve into truly beautiful objects that sound fantastic All the show notes for this episode are available in the description and there's a bunch more stuff at beforethebaropens.com. Before the Bar Opens is created by me, Emma Clark, and is produced by Rick Watson. I compose the theme music. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and maybe be featured in a future episode of Before the Bar Opens, check out the show notes and follow the Leave Us a Voice Message link. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, hopefully a lovely one, and tell your friends. Another episode will be along very soon, so don't miss it. Thanks for listening.